Okay, well, are you going to do like accountant? Yes, that's what I was just doing when I said one. (laughs) (laughs) What are you you counting to? (laughs) Oh my God. I smell the most scale, a podcast about science fiction, science and fiction. I'm Matty, also known as Panic in the UK. And I'm Ashley Naismith. Just Ashley. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Um, If you want to know more about us and about the podcast and where it came from uh, and uh, all of everything that's led up to this moment, then you can go back and you can listen to episode zero where we have a little bit of a chat about that. But if you just want to jump right in, then you're in luck uh, because that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, But first, (laughs) before we do that, um, we recorded this way, way back in the beginning of 2021. So uh, it's been a long road up to uh, getting this out. And you can hear more about that on our episode zero. When we first recorded this episode, which is about cultured meat, uh, it was actually in the news. So there'd been a couple of recent developments, one of which was that in Singapore... It had just been approved for sale. Uh, And there's also a Guardian article from around the same time about a restaurant in Israel that was selling like a lab-grown chicken burger. So it was just starting out. But more recently, there have been a couple of developments. Uh, I feel like I'm talking a lot, Ashley. Should I throw (laughs) over to you? Do you want to... Um, Yeah, no, you were doing such a great job there. I didn't want to interrupt. Um, I wasn't quite ready for you to throw it over to me, though. Sorry. (laughs) I was just listening. Um, So, yes, there's been recent developments um, in the US and also the UK. So post-Brexit, it is thought that lab-grown meats could um, be at the forefront in the UK. Um, There is a lot of food technology and research in the UK, so that makes a lot of sense. Um, It could also be related to our food security, which is another issue altogether. Mm. Um, And then additionally in the US at the moment, they are developing the world's largest fats for um, cultured meat. Um, I think it's interesting that they've slightly changed the phrasing in this Guardian article to be no-kill meat. I wondered if that was a little bit of a um, reframing. Well, it's interesting that you say that, but back in the article, this is the one about Singapore, this is from the 2nd of December 2020, and they do Mm. actually use the phrase no-kill in that article as well. Um, Mm. And, in fact, in the one from the 4th of December 2020, the word no-kill is in that headline as well. So it does seem... But I have to say it's not not a phrase that I've seen widely used. So I wonder if it's like a Guardian editorial thing specifically, like part of their style guide. I don't know. Mm, No, it's interesting. And also maybe not totally correct if we're... (laughs) Because as we discussed before. uh, As we discuss later, actually. (laughs) I'll say no more. (laughs) Yes, we've discussed it before, but you haven't heard it yet. So it's, oh oh man, it's, you know, it's quantum, baby. 
<laughs> but yeah, we'll, we'll be getting into that. But yes, it is an interesting choice of words. Um, mm. And yeah, I'm I'm curious as to the thinking behind that uh, that mm. choice. Um, but anyway, it does go to show just how much has happened in the last 18 months or so in terms of uh, developments. I mean, yeah, time's arrow marches on. At the end of the show, we are going to be unpacking... Unpacking. (laughs) We're going to be revisiting a few things that we talked about in our original record just to kind of do a few clarifications and maybe, yeah, just just revisit a few points that we didn't really get a chance to uh, properly develop in our initial record briefly hopefully um mm-hmm. so so do stick around if you're interested in that uh, but otherwise without further ado uh let's get a bit of rocking our first mini series is going to be on the future of food or perhaps it's the future i've tasted it it's the future i've tasted it and for our international listeners, or for anybody who, for some reason, doesn't get that reference, uh, that is a quote from Phoenix Nights. And, you know, I like to make references that are very relatable for everybody and de- and people are definitely going to enjoy. So that's great. Uh, but actually, I'll, I'll put in a little clip. Of, I'll see if I can find a clip of him saying that so that everybody is on the same page, including me. Garlic bread. Garlic bread. Garlic bread. That's right, Max. Garlic bread. It's the future. I've tasted it. Uh, so so we're doing a mini series on the future of food and we are going to start out on lab grown meat or cultured meat and we are calling this very first episode nice to meet you that's meat m-e-a-t and yes i came up with the title so don't blame ashley all of the puns are my fault uh so please if you do want to write in any complaints address them to me she has nothing to do with any of this. All right, Ashley, take it away. Why are we talking about cultured meats? Right, so lab-grown meat, or as you say, cultured meat as it's scientifically known, um, has been in the news fairly recently because it's been approved for sale by a regulatory body for the first time in Singapore. Um, I believe Singapore has been the first to approve it because they do have food sustainability issues and they rely quite heavily on imports. So that could be a reason why they're the first to approve it. But maybe the sign that more is coming. So shall we jump into some questions? Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to have a quiz and we're going to we're going to compete against each other and we're going to see who's the smartest, who's teacher's pet and who's who's the bad kid who's sitting at the back of the class smoking a cigarette. Well, I think you're all of those. (laughs) I know, I do. I do delightfully manage to combine those two archetypes. Um, All right, let's try it. Let's see how I do. We're going to start with your questions and then we're going to go into mine. Right. So question number one, food neophobia is fear of what? Uh, Fear of new foods, fear of new things, I would assume. Yes, exactly. Um, So it's quite well established in the behavioural sciences that people tend to be quite sceptical or even fearful of new new foods, so food neophobia, which is quite a problem when it comes to the cultured meat, because (laughs) however nice they manage to develop the meat to be, however perfect the texture is, people are likely to still be fearful of it and not want to try it, which is going to lead to some interesting... um, (laughs) 
behavioral science and how that how people they're going to get around that yeah. um as a vegetarian really i find that quite interesting that meat yeah. eaters are um equally disgusted by the prospect but <laughs> i've tested it on nicole and other family members and say would you try lab grown meat and they've all gone Ugh, no <laughs> Wow, that is so interesting. Yeah, that really Mm. surprises me because we kind of, we had that conversation like, would you eat it? And I think Mm. we both kind of said, look, neither of us has eaten meat for many years now. Mm. We can't really digest it. There's also the issue... Not that I've tried that, but... No, I, well, I, I I wouldn't want to try it, but as a vegetarian, I wouldn't want to try it. And But I don't really see any difference in terms of consuming it as opposed to whether it's lab-grown or traditionally farmed so well, I, I mean i, I do see a difference that, i think it's well yes in a good way in a good way yeah 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 <laughs> exactly like... but in terms of the actual eating aspect I, I don't understand why meat eaters would would feel that but no but apparently so um interestingly it seems to be more common for women to be put off at the idea of cultured meat um, where they're more open to eating plant-based um meat substitutes whereas yeah. it's the other way around for men which I think that ties in with something you were saying about bacon. <laughs> oh, for sure. Ago. Oh my God, yes. There is this whole thing about bacon. And I think just meat in general being really tied to masculinity, which is mm. entirely a marketing ploy. I think largely yeah. like coming out of the United States especially, but I think in this country too, just in the West in general, and probably uh, in many other places too. I mean, I, I don't know you know, if it's confined to the West at all, it probably isn't. Um, I think mm. in a lot of places, this idea that, um, you know, men were the hunters and women were the gatherers <laughs> prevails. Based Interesting, on... I, I read um, an article in New Scientist recently that was saying that actually um, women were also hunters in yeah. the kind of hunter-gatherer times um, until they had children and then it changed. But but younger women were expected to go hunting with the men. So yeah, that, that I mean, stereotype is <laughs> I don't um, know if unfounded ever any evidence that like hunting was specifically a masculine thing and gathering was specifically a feminine thing i think that may just have been based on biases i mean a lot of desmond morris so desmond morris was kind of an evolutionary i don't want to say evolutionary psychologist um evolutionist who who wrote the naked ape and i think oh, that okay. he kind of later admitted that a lot of his hypotheses were maybe based on speculation that that may have had some gender bias um elaine morgan who's this really interesting woman i don't think very well regarded in the scientific community but really really interesting not from a scientific background, but came up with this thing called the aquatic ape hypothesis, which I find totally fascinating. And a big part of her arguments was that um, a lot of people who talked about uh, evolutionary biology and the kind of sex and gender-based differences in that didn't take into account certain things um, and, you know, maybe kind of put too much emphasis on things like hunting when actually... Uh, hunting wasn't what provided the the largest part of people's diet actually people's diets would have been primarily plant-based even in like a pre-agricultural society Uh, Mm. and yet a lot of kind of evolutionary theorists really harped on the hunting stuff at the expense of other things so I think Mm. Elaine Morgan is a really interesting 
person, even though, you know, you don't necessarily have to buy into the aquatic ape hypothesis to think that some of her criticisms, like, have value. Um, although I actually think the aquatic ape hypothesis is totally fascinating and I'm kind of, I'm kind of swayed by it. We can talk about this. This is a podcast for another day. But anyway. Um, <laughs> whole podcast itself. It yes. kind of ties in a little bit as well. Where I, was, I was looking into um, some of the myths and a lot of um, hardcore carnivores or omnivores saying it's natural for us to eat meat because look at our teeth. Um, mm. And there do seem to be arguments for kind of both sides and there seems to be some recent research which has suggested that um so we've been consuming meat for about 2.6 million years and it's from that point there's been were changes to our skull and our jaw and the process of chewing and meat as opposed to having to spend hours and hours a day chewing raw potatoes or something <laughs> yeah <laughs> they it sounds great what... to me <laughs> Yeah. That's what I do anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's what all vegans do. Hey, um, I'm Irish, it... so what are you going to do? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so, but through that process, that's what enabled us to develop speech, P- potentially. It's, I don't think it's fully um, confirmed, but there was a suggestion that because of the move to eating meat, it changed our anatomy of the face and it, it enabled us to, to start speaking. Um, oh my so, god, that is totally fascinating. Yeah, so on the one hand, we might still, yeah, we, we wouldn't be the people we are today if we hadn't started eating meat, but nonetheless, our teeth have nothing to do with it, really. I mean, if you yeah. look at hippos' teeth, have you have you seen hippos' teeth? Yeah, they're, they're terrifying. They massive canine teeth. <laughs> and, hippos and are that's... one of the most dangerous animals, right? They cause mm, the most... But they're herbivores. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> No, I mean, mm. I, I think anyway, I find this argument kind of moot because there are so many things that we adapted to do that we no longer do as part of modern mm. society. Oh, and yeah. I think you can't just cherry pick and say, I'm going to keep doing this one thing because we adapted mm. to it. Whereas, totally you know, right. I'm not going to do all these many, many other things that are a lot less convenient to me. Yeah. Um, even though I had, like, even though as a species we did adapt to do that, you know, we didn't adapt to sit on the internet all day. We didn't adapt no. to, you know, be part of a capitalist society. But a lot fewer people yeah, seem to be... Or even live in houses or not Absolutely. just sit in a cave around fire. But yes, well, you don't see people proclaiming to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think many pre-agricultural societies were nomadic, Few people want to mm. become nomadic, but they still want to keep eating burgers. As if pre-agricultural people were yeah. eating burgers that somebody else had, like, reared, killed, ground up, and then put in, like, a little plastic package for them anyway. Yeah, like, maybe we're going, going a bit too, too much right. detail here with, yeah. the, with the grinding. All right, look, listen, I don't want to, <laughs> you know, I don't want to alienate our carnivorous listeners, obviously. No. You do you, baby, but, you know, I'm just saying. Anyway, let's move on. Interesting as well, talking about burgers and kind of grinding without going back into detail <laughs> on the grinding. Um, there seems to be quite a issue with the lab-grown meat in terms of texture and the structure. Mm. Um, so clearly it's now an established fact that we can make cultured meat, but developing and doing it in a burger is fine. So where you have got that kind of more mashed-up type of meat, that, that works okay. But when you come to trying to make actual cuts of meat, that seems to be where the challenge is now and mm. where the research is going. So there seems to be a lot of different approaches that the scientists are trying to use to, to develop disordered muscle fibres. So 
kind of within a cut of meat, like steak seems to be the holy grail. For some I was going to say, like, <laughs> yeah, a raw bloody steak is what everybody yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've got, obviously, you've got the nerve and the connective tissues, you've got fat content, you've got blood vessels, and then the blood itself. Have you seen the, the um, vegetarian burgers that have blood in, by the way? Is this the Beyond Meat or the... Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I mean... I, I couldn't eat them. They're just the... If it looks too real, real, I can't. I can't eat them. It doesn't appeal to me. Like <laughs> mm. it having blood on it is not a selling point for me. I guess I can see how it might be for some people who are new vegetarians or flexitarians or whatever. Mm. But for me, like the blood. I mean, that's kind of what I'm trying to avoid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Among other things, you know, is like eating something that looks like it has blood on it. Yeah. Like that's not. I'm not into that. But no judgment. Yeah. But anyway, so with with cultured meat trying to accurately mimic all of that is where where the complexity really is and so current research is trying to investigate how you do that so they're looking at edible scaffolds so for example maybe using gelatin or soy protein and then potentially Uh. using 3d printing to kind of and tissue engineering techniques to build up the steak (laughs) so where, where you can get the actual kind of i suppose chemical composition of a steak and nutritionally it would be pretty similar but but that actual texture that's that seems to be the really complicated part yeah i mean adding gelatin seems like it's problematic right because i mean surely you're trying to at least have crossover appeal to vegetarians even if you're not targeting them and Mm. by adding gelatin you're kind of then and that leads perfectly into my next question oh great cultured meat contains no animal product true or false Right, so I feel like I'm cheating a little bit because I kind of, I already knew this, but, or maybe I'm wrong, I don't know, we'll see if I get this (laughs) right. Uh, So my understanding is that it is initially, in order to get the process started, they take a tissue sample from the animal, say chicken Mm. or whatever, and then that's what they use as the basis of then culturing the meat. So technically, it does contain animal products, but no animals had to die for it to exist, which I think makes it technically vegetarian, but not vegan. Sort of. So it was a little bit more complicated than I was expecting. Okay. So lab-grown meat is, is produced by extracting cells from a living animal and then placing those cells in a petri dish growth medium to provide the nutrients. Um, and then they're, they're put inside a bioreactor, which is a vessel that maintains the optimum conditions such as temperature and pH and things like that so that it can grow into the meat that the researchers want. And technically, no animals need to be slaughtered to, mm-hmm. to extract those cells. But the Dutch pharmacologist Professor Post, I think his name is, who was the first to prove the concept of lab-grown meat, he has said that the most efficient way of taking the process forward would still involve slaughter. Right. Um, because the idea being that you have a limited herd of donor animals, um, which you then keep stock for, of your cells from there. I um, see. So, so it's more about there's... limiting the number of animals you slaughter mm. rather than actually kind of getting rid of slaughtering animals altogether. Mm. The thing huh. I was a bit unsure about, though, is I'm not sure whether it's for the cell aspect or the other part is that currently the best known growth medium is fetal bovine serum, uh, FBS, which is made from the blood of a dead calf. Sure. Um, so currently the nutrition that they're using in the growth phase or, or the most commonly used one is coming from a dead calf. Um, and they can't extract the blood from the calf i didn't understand that i must admit i'd I'd need to do a bit more reading but that seems to be the most 
effective method. I don't know whether right. it's because of the quantity you need. Maybe it's a quite a high quantity. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. But there is a lot of research going on to find alternatives to that. Um, for a start, using the fetal bovine serum is a really expensive component. Right. So as long as they use that, it's it's going to be quite an expensive end product. So there's a lot of research trying to find an alternative which will bring down the production alongside making it, I suppose, more appealing to a wider market. But yeah, right now, <laughs> it's not perfect, but oh my goodness, so, so much better than what would happen otherwise, I suppose. Yeah, sure. <laughs> But okay, not to uh, not to get too hung up on the point system. But what is that? Do I get half a point for that one? <laughs> oh, well, you, you you kind of said false, didn't you? So it would have been false. So okay, I guess you're right. Just without okay. the detail. You're gonna be, you're gonna mark generously. I appreciate I'll, I'll that. I'll mark generously. Thank I, you. I expect the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, most of mine are like multiple choices, so I don't know if there's much leeway there. But I'll. Uh, hmm. uh, <laughs> I'll maybe try and make the next ones uh, more of a softball for you. Right, thanks. <laughs> um, right, next question. How many people suffer from antibiotic infections each year in the US? Oh. And this isn't multiple cho- choice, which was maybe a bit unfair. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now I feel less bad. Sorry, antibiotic resistant infections. A bit more specifically. So we're talking stuff like MRSA and things like that? Mm, maybe <laughs> MRSA as we call it um, yeah. over here yeah. Yeah. Uh, how many people mm, oh my god how many people in the US each year I could not begin to imagine 750,000 uh, 750,000 that's my guess okay 2 million roughly wow okay <laughs> so you're a little bit far off but pro- yeah. not a bad guess um, so there's about 2 million antibiotic resistance infections and around 20,000 deaths each year um, in the US. Mm. Um, the reason why this is relevant is because the safety of cultured meat is supposed to be one of the advantages of it over traditional farming. Sure, so, absolutely. Excluding, excluding the ethical debate right now, the, the safety is supposedly superior or should be yeah, superior I mean, because it's in control I... conditions. I think particularly in the US, that's a really big issue because Mm. their livestock is pumped with a lot of antibiotics. I think more so than in Europe, because I think the the FDA, from what I understand, is a little bit more lax than the European, whatever the European Mm. body is that is equivalent. They certainly seem to have different viewpoints anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I think that, you know, in the US, for sure... Like that is that is a much bigger issue than it is in Europe currently. But obviously, now that we are no longer in Europe, it remains mm. to be seen how that is going to affect us in the future. Mm. <sighs> anyway, let's not go there. <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> um, no, I don't so... want to alienate every single listener. But <laughs> yeah, oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? It, you know, let's let them know where we stand. <laughs> Okay, well, anyway, going back to the antibiotics, though. Yeah. Um, it, so in cultured meat, there's reduced opportunity for it, the contact with pathogens. So it should theoretically be safer. And currently, especially probably in the US more than here currently, antibiotic resistance is a really big concern, and mm. especially within livestock. And there is quite intensive antibiotic usage in agriculture, and that does promote the antibiotic resistance, which leads sure. to sicknesses. Um, so quite a major public health 
food safety concern there. Yeah, definitely. Um, That's very interesting. I mean, I would imagine that that, uh, you know, not all of those uh, infections are caused by consuming meat. Some of them would be because of over prescribing antibiotics and things like that. Yeah, possibly. I I think it was connected to agriculture, but I would I will double check that. Okay, cool. <laughs> right. Next question. Bit of a curveball. How many Uh-oh. people are suffering from undernourishment? One hundred million. 500 million or 800 million across the world um i mean i'm gonna go high i'm gonna go 800 million i I would imagine that it's that it's on the high side i mean what we've got about eight billion people getting on for eight billion people on the planet right now Mm -hmm. is that right so eight uh, oh is it not get is it not getting up there all right well anyway Uh, but yeah so what nine billion by 2050 so I always get confused with billions, but would eight hundred million be roughly ten percent? Yeah, because I get billion... confused as well because the, the Americans do something different, don't they? Yeah, I think that the U.S. billions and the U.K. billions used to be different, but now we've just kind of given up and said let's just go with them. <laughs> um, I, I feel as a scientist, I should be fairly um, <laughs> fairly <laughs> confident with this, but every uh, time I'm like, I don't know how many. Zeros. Yeah, I can never remember. <laughs> But I think that just a big number. I think eight hundred million would be ten percent of roughly ten percent of the world population, and that sounds. Okay, I have to pressure you here. What's your answer? But eight hundred, eight hundred, eight hundred million, eight hundred million. That is correct. Well done. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Currently, about ten percent of the world's population is suffering from undernourishment, with Mm. nearly uh, nearly three hundred million being on the brink of starvation. Yeah, Um, and and that's now, uh, and we're currently sitting at around seven point three billion global population but that's right expected to grow to about 9 billion by 2050 and also an increase of meat consumption as well with developing economies wanting to up meat and dairy consumption so that reaching about 90 percent of the world eating meat mm. um, so clearly there's a rather large demand on food and as it stands it, it's unsustainable right now yeah. let alone by 2050 And I think we're probably going to talk about this more um, on another episode. But in terms Mm. of land use, rearing animals for food is not a very efficient use of land in terms of food production. So that's Mm. it's not ideal. Right. And and, yeah. And and the feed required for the animals. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Billions of hectares of land is is used on just the food for the animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And it's like something ridiculous, but like X pounds of grain to produce one pound of beef. Mm. Um, whereas obviously you could use the grain directly as food for humans and it would be a lot more efficient as, yeah. Mm. Uh, and it would also a sort of, there's a kind of calorific um, versus micronutrient protein argument, but still, yes. it's, <laughs> it's a lot of land. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So currently, the um, Food and Agricultural Organization forecasts that food production would need to increase by about 70% to meet the growing demand. 70%. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, So. It's not going to happen, is it? We need to find different methods. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, you've got the whole greenhouse gases as well with with the food industry. So the food industry generates 25% of global greenhouse gases. Is it Which, is it more than cars? Is that right? Oh, good question. I think it's more than cars, but I believe yeah, I, I believe it is. I have to check what that figure is. Yeah, but yeah, twenty five percent from the food industry. 
Yeah. Um, so so it, I think I think it's fair to say that we we've already surpassed the sustainable limits of food production. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no arguments um, here. <laughs> no, no arguments there. So, with that in mind, how many beef burgers can you make from one living cow cell? One billion, one hundred thousand, or one million? Wait, hang on. You mean with the cultured meat, right? So with one, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Let me ask that again. How many beef burgers can be made from in the? <laughs> How many cultured beef burgers can be made from one living cow cell? Gotcha. One hundred thousand, one million, or one billion? Ooh, um, I'm gonna go straight down the middle of the road on this one. I'm gonna guess that it is one million. No, it is one billion. What? That's crazy. That's a lot. That's a lot of burgers, man. That is is insane. That's more than you need. I couldn't eat that many. More than you need. (laughs) Like, so you try. (laughs) Um, So yeah. So sorry, gone. Well, I was just going to say, you know, in terms of like the donor pool that we were talking about of animals mm. that you would have to rear, I mean, that seems like it would have to be very small, that mm. that donor pool of animals. You uh, think? I'm you not can... actually sure how many billions of beef burgers the world eats in a given year. But... Right. And I mean, also <laughs> there are like infrastructure things here. Yeah. I mean, the point is actually, you know, in many places there's a food surplus it's just that Mm. that food isn't getting to the people who need it so you know a lot of this is about access to food and about infrastructure and about like complex geopolitical stuff as much as it is about producing the right amount of food so you know there are a lot Mm. of things going on there and obviously you know this is a much more expensive process at least at the moment of producing meat than the one we currently have in place so Mm. it's not necessarily going to like solve world hunger at this stage right because there are so many other factors that go into it than just you know producing the food it's about getting it to people although although i did i I did read that they're looking because at the moment it is it's not fully scalable to the level that it would need to be but there was one suggestion was could you make it could it be done in a way that people can eventually culture their own meat at home and i suppose Mm. if you can do that then that gets rid of some of the distribution issues that you have yeah um, but i mean depending on yeah. how complex the <laughs> what what the infrastructure is you need to do it at home i mean this I is the thing i mean there are people in the world who don't have access to clean water so mm. if we if we haven't been able to solve that problem yet can we really realistically say that we're going to be able to give them like a cultured meat machine um <laughs> you know like how realistic is that if if they don't have a well in their village or, you know. Um, I think we have to look at what the existing inequalities are Mm. and think about what problems need to be solved rather than kind of imagining that, yeah, you can't wave Mm. a magic wand, I guess is what I'm saying. There are a lot of complex factors at work. Yeah. Anyway. That is true. (laughs) (laughs) Not to be a downer or anything. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, there there blows that one then. (laughs) Um, yes, but one, so one billion cultured beef burgers can be produced from one single living cell. Um, and just as a comparison, um, to produce one billion beef burgers by traditional farming, it would take 500,000 cows and it would take 18 months. Wow. So for one cell from one living cow, you can have a billion beef burgers in under two months, whereas traditional farming, 500,000 cows would have to be slaughtered over 18 months. 
Well, it sounds good to me. <laughs> I feel like I'm in an infomercial. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It? <laughs> okay, I'll stop selling the cultured meat. <laughs> I don't have no, any no. to sell. I'm I make into no it. money from I'm this. Into it. <laughs> um, so, as a, another aspect of that is um, that a 20% reduction in meat consumption in, in just the US um, would provide a reduction of 100 million metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions. And that, that's the equivalent of a combined greenhouse gas emissions of Greece, Slovenia and Luxembourg altogether. Just, wow. just if, the, if Americans ate 20% less, less meat over a year. I mean, Luxembourg's not that impressive, though. But <laughs> hey, but it, there's three countries. Three I know, countries I know, I know. <laughs> All right. Right. Next question. Oh, two truths, one lie. Excellent. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. Lab-grown meat is not suitable for vegans. Lab-grown meat will cause risk of extinct- extinction to farmed animals. Lab-grown meat has higher energy impact than traditional farming. Uh, right. Okay. So lab-grown meat is not suitable for vegans. Seems like a gray area, but I would say that is true given that, as we said, it does involve using animal products to culture the meat as part of that initial process. So I'm going to say that that is true. Um... Oh, am I supposed to say this yet? (laughs) I'll just keep quiet whilst you work Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, 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 wait. (laughs) Although that's good to know. All right, so I'm still looking for one like, all right, so it's higher energy output or extinction of farmed animals. Well, I feel like I kind of know that it's not going to lead to extinction of farmed animals because they need a donor pool, right, as we talked about, which makes me think that it does have a higher energy output, which I don't know, that seems wrong to me, but I'm going to go with that, that it currently has a higher energy output, but that once it were operating on like a more widely, then that would even out. That's what I'm going to go with. Yeah. Final answer? Mm, yes. <laughs> yes, you're correct. Um, so lab-grown meat does have a higher energy impact currently than traditional farming. So if it were to be scaled to the level to provide sufficient meat to replace what is currently done by traditional farming, there would be a higher energy impact because the equipment in running labs and culturing the meat is higher. Obviously, in other areas such as methane, carbon, carbon footprints, water use, land use, it's it's a huge advantage it's way better yeah but when it comes to actual energy use it is higher than traditional farming interesting the hope would be though that as we find greener methods for providing energy that would even out and be better as well great okay that makes sense Mm -hmm. all right so if i'm counting right i got four four out of six is that right i I wasn't counting i forgot to count but oh uh... (laughs) Hang on, I got. I think I got uh, the first two right, and then I got the eight hundred million one right, and then the last yeah. one. The antibiotic one was probably unfair, but so didn't get that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that sounds right. Yeah. All right, cool. So you've got four out of six. All um, right, we'll see how just you briefly do. Briefly on the extinction of farmed animals, though. Yes. Um, apparently, there is a concern for people that if everyone was to go vegan overnight, that all, all the farm animals would go extinct. Either that, or that cows would take over the world. Seems to be another concern. 
I would love to see them try. They don't have thumbs. What are they going to do? Come They'll just on. stare. They'll stare at people and really freak them out. Honestly, Planet of the Cows, I'm up for it. Bring it on. Um, yeah, so I, I'm not sure that cow global domination is probably high up on their priorities. But the going extinct is, is a bit more interesting. I think the assumption, or at least my assumption, would be that there will be plenty of willing humans happy to help rewild some of the farm animals or look after them. There is an element that you've got some breeds that have been developed especially for food production and which see some heartbreaking pictures of chickens that yeah. have broken legs and things like that where they've they've been designed to grow fast to make meat exactly it's like if, if they go the wild if they go extinct i mean is that a bad thing right like yeah. we I guess have that's where the ethics comes in yeah i mean i think mm-hmm. we've kind of had this conversation before but i think you know it's not as if these are like happy little cows roaming about on the hillsides with the like wind blowing through their fetlocks or whatever it is that cows have you know these cows have an absolutely miserable time keeping them alive for the purpose of having a miserable life and then being killed is Mm. not like ethically superior to letting them naturally die out which even if you know even if that were the case i still don't think that that would be for me an ethical concern you know Mm. a lot of these kind of breeds of animal only exist because we've engineered them for our own purposes and i don't think that the argument that they would cease to exist if we stopped doing that is you know one that i find very persuasive they shouldn't exist yeah, that, I, I find that interesting because I've been thinking this over because I think I agree with your point of view. I think if yeah, if they cease to exist because we're no longer um, manufacturing them, them for, right? yeah, for, for meat, then that's okay. But why, why would... And because we have, like you say, engineered them for our own means, it feels almost like that they are an unnatural evolution that if, if it's just for meat, it's okay if they do go extinct. But... Is that is that wrong? Because like we wouldn't say that about any other animal. We wouldn't say, oh well, pandas they're endangered, but let's not worry about it. We wouldn't say it for anything else. So no, why? but we haven't because pandas aren't part of a system of exploitation that we've perfected over hundreds of years. A and B, you know, they're a vital part of the ecosystem in a way that cows aren't. Uh, you know, mm. cows that we farm are damaging to the ecosystem because we Mm. are intensively breeding them in a way that's unnatural. Mm. I mean, there is an argument that maybe... (laughs) Maybe pandas should go extinct i'm not okay i'm not saying this i'm not saying they're not trying very hard no 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 well this is all i mean is they don't have a lot of babies and they can only eat one thing and they have to eat so much of it to get all the nutrients why haven't they evolved that that needs to be a different discussion why why are pandas not evolving to help themselves I mean, I wonder if pandas would even exist now if it weren't for, like, the efforts that we've made to keep them going. And there is a whole, like, charismatic megafauna thing, which is essentially Mm. that, you know, we use pandas as kind of mascots because people find them cute. They are cute. They are cute. Of course they're cute. But 
they're not necessarily as vital a part of the ecosystem as like certain insects that like Mm. aren't as cute but actually like play a larger role in keeping the ecosystem healthy but people don't care about the insects they think they're annoying or you know whatever so Mm. you use the charismatic megafauna to convince people to think about the environment or think about ecosystems and habitats and stuff and that has a knock-on effect of protecting all of the other animals that are in that habitat or that ecosystem so it's not Mm. really about the pandas the pandas are just kind of like a symbol but talking about pandas Uh um, cultured meat also bring kind of raises the question that you could then culture panda meat and other endangered species for Ah! human consumption, which is an interesting prospect, but no reason why not, and could um, maybe replace some more (laughs) um, risky delicacies, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose suppose there's no reason why not. Mm. I do wonder, I mean, naturally these would be our predators, we likely would not eat these. So we're not adapted Mm. necessarily to digest that type of meat. So maybe Mm. it's not super healthy, but I don't know. But again, with it being cultured meat, you can engineer the nutrition. Yeah, you can change the nutritional profile, which also has other benefits potentially. Like if you were to tweak the nutritional profile of a beef burger to have less bad fats and more good fats in, for example. Wow. Because obviously when when it comes to changing people's behavior around food it is incredibly challenging yes i think food is (laughs) as we've seen for other reasons and why probably why we've got to this point but if we could tweak the nutritional profile which again we'll probably link up with our later episode into being the the perfect nutritional gloop probably (laughs) is yeah we, we can potentially address other issues such as obesity and risks of heart disease and other stuff sure. that comes with the negatives yeah. of too much meat consumption i mean again, without having to stop eating meat <laughs> yeah i mean again in terms of things like obesity and heart disease like this is very much a kind of class and equality issue as much as it is to do with healthy foods existing it's about access to those healthy foods i think mm. particularly in the u.s again like food deserts are a massive issue where people just like literally don't have access to fresh and healthy food or the fresh Mm. and healthy food is way more expensive you know i mean you know if you think about somebody who's working like 12 hours for minimum wage and you know comes home starving are they going to want to you know make themselves a nice healthy balanced meal that costs more or are they just going to go to mcdonald's and spend like two dollars or whatever it might be on Mm. a burger that's going to fill them up and just give them enough energy to keep going there are all these kind of equality issues that are less about what food exists and more about who has access to that food and who you know what people's lives are like right like Mm. not everybody has the time to cook not everybody is taught how to cook properly from a young age you know that's another Mm. issue it's like there is again there are so many like complex factors when it comes to this stuff and access to healthcare, right in terms of like heart disease okay i'm not gonna i I, sorry (laughs) i don't want to derail this i just you know I, i think it's really important when we talk about new advances in technology that we acknowledge mm. that technological advances can only help people if the power structures that are in place allow them to help people 
because mm. we have so many types of technology that could benefit people that just aren't benefiting people because mm. the money yeah. is not being spent to get them access to that technology or you know whatever um mm. so anyway uh, like let's stay positive but let's also acknowledge there are other factors at work i'm yeah. sorry i'm sorry no, no, no I, I i agree with what you're saying I, th- there's an interesting perspective when you're saying though about food being too expensive and i agree that for many people it is but there is another perspective that it's becoming a commodity and is potentially too cheap now that's not to say that it's affordable for everyone because i'm fully aware that good food does feel expensive in the scheme of things but there's i'm I'm not sure what side of the fence i sit on with it but it it is interesting because i think for the average person the amount spent on food is less than it was say 50 years ago but quite significantly and food is becoming more of a commodity so although i think obviously good food needs to be affordable by more people maybe it needs to be addressed in a different way to making food cheaper yeah i mean i think i think the issue there is that wages have not risen in line mm. with inflation so even yeah. if certain things might be cheaper now that doesn't mean they're more affordable because people yeah. have less money than they did Mm. Um, particularly, you know, the poorest people, obviously, you know, if you Mm. look at how minimum wage has stagnated in relation to inflation, you know, it is shocking. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I I understand your point, but I think that Mm. when it comes to the poorest people, the fact that food on paper has become cheaper does not necessarily mean that it is actually more affordable or accessible to people in real terms. Yeah. But All right. We're... Think, yeah. But let's let's not go there too much. <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to my questions. Yay. Uh, and let's see how you do. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm ready. Excellent. So when we were talking about this topic, I was kind of saying, hey, I don't know how much synthetic food is going to come up in science fiction because it's kind of, in my mind, it was kind of a utopian idea. And Mm. most science fiction is not utopian. Some of it is, most of it isn't. So I was surprised actually to find how widespread the idea is in science fiction, but also how far back it goes. So science fiction always outpaces science reality. But can you guess within 10 years, plus or minus, what the first reference to synthetic meat is in science fiction? 1950 oh you are way off i'm afraid ah really yeah it's actually 1897 really well as far as as far as i can tell the earliest example is in two planets by kurd lasvitz uh where synthetic meat is one of the varieties of synthetic food introduced on earth by martians so nearly 125 years back that it was wow, first being taken a while to catch up yeah yeah so uh... <laughs> but you know it's so interesting with science fiction sometimes it can lead science like um for example on star trek which we will talk about more in a moment they came up with the idea of automatic doors before they actually existed and oh, may really? actually be the reason the automatic doors exist because they gave scientists the idea to like achieve huh. that so, you know, it's really interesting that sometimes science fiction can kind of lead science, although often mm. it doesn't. We still don't have flying cars. Yeah. Honestly, I'm fine <laughs> with that. Like, that's okay. You know, people always complain about that. I'm like, I don't want a flying car. 
you know? You, you get hoverboards now, don't you? But they're not they're mm. not really hoverboards. They're not great. They're called hoverboards, but they're not. I saw yeah. someone fall over on one earlier. <laughs> quite loudly. Oh. <laughs> I didn't laugh. Didn't laugh. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um <laughs> But yeah, anyway, uh, yeah, it's interesting, like, it took almost 125 years for the science mm. to catch up with the fiction. Wow. All right, so, question number two, true or false, Snowpiercer was based on a graphic novel. Ah, didn't watch it. I was going to watch it. I had it on my list. That's <laughs> um, okay. True. Oh, you are dead right. It yes. was, in yes, fact... I knew that. <laughs> It was adapted from, oh man, my French pronunciation is so bad. This is going to be embarrassing. Let me try it. <laughs> Le Transpersonnage ah. uh, by Jacques Loeb and Jean-Marc Rochette uh, from 1982. So I haven't yeah. read the graphic novel. I have seen the movie. As far as I am aware, unless I missed something synthetic or cultured meat is not referenced in the film itself but apparently it is part of the graphic novel so do you know in what way that it is referenced then what kind of synthetic meat is it is it the kind that is now being developed or is it in what way is it different i don't know i mean i you know that there are a lot of different references to food in the in the film there are a lot of different references to food scarcity and different ways of addressing it none of which in the film is synthetic meat yeah i i don't actually know the specifics of that but i think that snowpiercer is probably something that we're going to keep coming back to mm. because in this mini series just because i will watch it it um it does kind of touch on so many different aspects of food scarcity and different approaches to managing that. So on that topic, who directed Snowpiercer? Is it A, uh, Yun Sang Ho? Is it B, Park Chan Wook? Is it C, Bong Joon Ho? Or is it D, July Jung? Oh, that was a lot of options. <laughs> Do you want me to go over them again? Yes, please go over the them again. Okay, and these are all real directors. Um, okay. They're all real Korean directors. So don't, like, none of them are fake names or anything. Okay. okay. Although I might be pronouncing them really badly, to be fair. Okay, right, that so might is... be what's throwing me. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> Alright, so is it A, Yun Sang-ho, B, Park Chan-wook, C, Bong Joon-ho, or D, July Jung? I'm going to go for Park Chan-wook. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's Bong Joon-ho. Ah, <sighs> oh, that was my second guess. <laughs> Bong Joon-ho, uh, probably most famous in the West for directing Parasite, which I won the Oscar last I year. Thought, mm -hmm. we, I watched that and I still have nightmares. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It was scary. It was scary. Snowpiercer is pretty disturbing as well, I have to admit. Oh, uh, you know, I've got to warn um, you. Yeah, but um, very interesting. Well scary film. Really, really worth watching. Super, super mm. interesting. Um, okay. Bong Joon-ho also directed Okja, or possibly Okja, which is a film about genetic modification. So I'm sure mm. that is something that we will talk about mm. subsequently in this series. A lot of really interesting projects from Bong Joon-ho and um, mm. quite often both on uh, class disparity and also kind of different possibilities for the future of food. So definitely That's a really interesting pa Parasite was not really... <laughs> in that remit but, but um yeah, parasite class, no class pa disparity yeah 
For sure, close disparity, yeah. yeah. I mean, he actually has a really kind of broad range of films that he's made, but certainly in his English language films, there seems to be this kind of interest in kind of sci-fi approaches to food scarcity and things like that. So yeah, it's interesting. Do you know if in Korea food scarcity is quite prevalent? Mm, Certainly, I mean, you know, obviously he is from South Korea or the Republic of Korea. In North Mm. Korea, for sure, it is a major issue. I think Mm. South Korea less so. To be honest with you, I wish I knew more uh, about that. Certainly, I think that poverty is an issue, you know, and class inequality certainly seems to be a major issue. But whether food scarcity per se, like independent from general poverty, is more of an Mm -hmm. issue there than it is anywhere else with a big gap between rich and poor, I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it might just be something that he in particular is kind of interested in. But it is also interesting that it seems to come out more in his English language films than in his Korean language Mm -hmm. films. So, you know, I don't know I don't know what the roots of that are, but uh, it certainly seems to be a topic that he returns to. And, I mean, class disparity, for sure, is like a big, big theme in his movies pretty much throughout his career. But the food thing, yeah, more in the English language stuff, for whatever reason. Mm, that is interesting. Well, if I can, if I can handle how scary they are, then I will try and watch them. <laughs> <laughs> I think Snowpiercer... But if Parasite's anything to go by, then I'm probably not going to get very far. Snowpiercer is not scary in the same way that Parasite is scary. It is more disturbing, I would say, uh, Mm. in that it uh, tackles some really dark themes, some very disturbing themes. But it's not like, there aren't sort of jump scares, I wouldn't say. It's Mm. more that it's kind of a very, very dark action film. Um, Mm. But really, really interesting, for sure, and definitely worth watching, I think. Uh, There's also a new show on Netflix uh, based on Snowpiercer, but I have not seen it. Uh, I think, from what I've heard, it's not as good as the movie, but, mm, you know, maybe worth checking out. But let's uh, let's take a sharp turn. Uh, Here we go. Question number four. And at the moment, uh, you have you have one right. Yeah, I have one right so far. (laughs) I need to get the rest right. (laughs) <laughs> no pressure or anything. Oh. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, who is the creator of Star Trek? Is it A, Matt Berry? Is it B, Gene Roddenberry? Is it C, Daryl Strawberry? Or is it D, Barry Adams? Oh, I feel like I should know this. Oh. I am very amused at oh. my own joke, by the way. <laughs> uh, what was your joke? Um, well, they're all Barry names, um, and one of, one of them in particular tickles me. Um, but (laughs) I will tell you, three out of four of those are real people, so don't (laughs) let that fool you too much. Uh, I have no idea. You want me to go through them again? I'm gonna go for C. C, Daryl Strawberry. I'm so sorry. One? That is a no. That's not the fake one, but it is. Uh, so I, I think he's it's a. Wrong. Ba- it's wrong. I think he's <sighs> a baseball player. Oh, uh, I've lost. There's no point continuing. <laughs> Call it off. Shut it down. <laughs> Stop, yeah, don't want to do it. You anymore. can catch up next week. You can okay. catch up next week. It's I'm going to make it really hard next week for you. Oh, I was going to say I was going to make it easier <laughs> for you. That's not fair. All right. Um, fair, no, so in fact. <laughs> okay. In fact, the creator of Star Trek is Gene Roddenberry. Um, oh, that was my next guess. 
He created the original Star Trek and also Star Trek The Next Generation. He's a really interesting figure. I think that he was very frustrating to work with and quite inflexible, but at the same time, he created this kind of utopian vision. Uh, Star Trek was the first show to have an interracial kiss. Um, It was Mm. one of the earliest shows to have african-americans and asian-americans uh in kind of positions of influence on a tv show um it had you know a sympathetic russian character during the cold war and also you know that in terms of kind of women having a certain amount of equality even though they did have to wear very short skirts uh, you know in some ways star trek was very very progressive um in other ways you know i think behind the scenes there was a lot of tension and it didn't always live up to those ideals in terms of the actual experience of working on it for people Mm. um but certainly like gene roddenberry yeah created this really interesting kind of utopian paradigm and the reason that i bring up star trek of course is that the meat in star trek is synthetic um so obviously star trek was very long running first of all you have the original series then you have the next generation voyager deep space nine enterprise and now more recently you have discovery and picard and it's a cartoon which i think is lower decks i think it's lower decks not below decks uh one of those Mm. i think is like a reality tv show and one of those is a star trek cartoon (laughs) but anyway don't model Um, them up (laughs) <laughs> i'm pretty sure it's lower decks but yeah so so you have these like different eras of star trek and you have different showrunners and different writers and different approaches so it's hard to say that there's necessarily like a consistent approach um and you do get kind of different takes on it but it does seem that in the early days so in the original series and in enterprise which was made later but set before as a prequel um they are using synthetic or cultured meat and then later on they are using meat that comes out of their replicators so they have Mm. they in star trek certainly by the time you're in uh the next generation era they use replicators to make all of their food and in fact pretty Mm. much everything so they live in a total post-scarcity society they don't Mm. really delve into the complexities of that all that much i don't think but it's very interesting so uh i actually have a clip um that i think illustrates this point quite nicely if you'd like to have a little listen to that Sorry to call you, sir. Not strictly security. It's about the dietary requirements of the Antican delegates. I thought that had been taken care of in advance. <laughs> so did we, sir. Their live animals were beamed aboard. We were going to preserve the meat for them, but they say we must bring it to them alive. Then do so. <laughs> Lieutenant Yar was confused. <laughs> we no longer enslave animals for food purposes. <laughs> But we have seen humans eat meat. You've seen something as fresh and tasty as meat, but inorganically materialized out of patterns used by our transporters. Wasn't expecting that noise. (laughs) That was mainly acting by the 
<laughs> well, I don't know what that was. <laughs> but it, it's interesting uh, them calling barbaric. I, I, I'm convinced that that p- people in a hundred years will look back on us now and think it was barbaric that we still ate meat at this point. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I think that that's kind of the the joke, right? In that clip, is mm, yeah. you know that this this alien thinks it's barbaric, uh, you know, to have synthetic meat, whereas he or they are um eating live animals um, mm. so uh, so yeah you know i think that again you know this is kind of star trek's progressive agenda to some degree but interestingly enough later on in the star trek mythos so particularly in picard you do see people eating meat uh from animals um mm. and indeed picard himself eats a bunnicorn what uh, a hypocrite well, yeah. Well, uh, the the guy talking there is Riker, but actually, I think in that same episode, he's grilling, and it's like, it's animals that his daughter has actually hunted uh, from the wild, which I guess is kind oh. of ethically, in my opinion, better than rearing animals yeah. for food. But I, I think ethically, I, I feel more comfortable with if you have hunted it and done everything yourself. I feel ethically that better yeah i I agree in a way that the animal has a fair chance i I guess yeah i think it's less exploitative yeah um i think that it psychologically it means that you have a connection to the production of the food and you're kind of more in tune with that which i think is healthier psychologically and yeah i think just in terms of sustainability i think it's better so Mm. you know i have much less of a kind of ethical concern as far as that goes but i do think it's really interesting that later in the series you do see people consuming real meat and i think part of that is that the recent star trek properties so the ones that are from the last few years discovery picard and uh lower decks or whatever it's called particularly discovery and picard they're this part of this kind of darker grittier approach that you're seeing in pop culture generally i mean that's been going on probably since the late 80s or 90s anyway but i think star trek took a lot longer to get there you do start to see that a little bit in ds9 but i think even in ds9 it's not quite there yet and i think with picard and discovery you're seeing maybe more of a reckoning with the complexities of the idea of Starfleet, which is arguably a colonialist project and kind of ideas around whether it's about assimilation, whether there's maybe some darkness under the surface. So I think it's kind of interesting. And, you know, I don't think the meat thing is necessarily a deliberate attempt to get that across, but I think it's really interesting that in the kind of earlier, more utopian days, more Roddenberry-esque days of Star Trek, you have people generally not eating meat, and then as it starts to get darker and grittier, you start to see people actually eating meat. I think yeah. on some level, there's there's a kind of interesting thing going on there. Mm, yeah, that is an interesting contrast, isn't it? That... yeah. I agree. Especially given that it, it started out with not eating meat to then move to it. Is, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Mm, yeah. yeah. I think, you know, people would still very occasionally be seen eating meat in the earlier Star Trek properties, but generally speaking, it was much less uh, prevalent than it became in the later ones. All right. Let's let's get through these next couple as quick yeah, as we can. On. All right. So in which David Lynch movie do man-made chickens appear? A, the Elephant Man, B, Blue Velvet, C, a Razorhead, or D, Dune. 
Ooh, um, I'm going to go for June. That is a great guess, and I totally understand why you would think that. But it's actually a razor head. <sighs> and in this case, you know, I think it's super interesting. Um, and again, you know, I was kind of saying, hey, synthetic meat is utopian. It's great. Everybody wants to have synthetic meat. Actually, when you drill down, you realize that a lot of people use it to denote something disturbing, you know, creepy. Oh, really? Yeah, twisted. Certainly, I think in the case of a razor head, it is being used to that effect. But that's kind of David Lynch's whole MO. And I will say, I absolutely love a razor head and I love David Lynch. So that is not a dig. I've not seen it. So how's he used it then? Yeah, it's a long time since I've seen it. But um, basically, uh, I think he's at this really awkward dinner party. And this guy brings out these chickens and he says they're man-made. And then as he's carving into the chickens, they start to move. Oh. Yeah, creepy. Um, oh. I need to rewatch Eraser Head, actually. It's great. It's probably been like 13 years since I saw it or something. But uh, But yeah, good fun good fun so that is an example i think of where it's not being used to denote a kind of utopian Mm. ideal and it's more being used to show a kind of creepy mechanized world where people are maybe Mm. out of touch with the natural order etc etc yeah Yeah, that that is an interesting spectrum which you could apply to what's happening now and how we're developing but i think if it, it comes from necessity why we're looking at it now well yeah but also we're not in touch with the natural order in the way that we currently produce meat like pumping them full of steroids and antibiotics and like not letting them outside not that we're allowed outside right now but you know (laughs) (laughs) nobody's pumping me full of steroids and antibiotics or are they hey what was in that drink anyway Uh, (laughs) (laughs) moving on moving on uh which video games plot revolves around a synthetic meat company is it a fallout new vegas is it b planet base is it c project eden or is it d ratchet and clank isn't ratchet and clank with that yellow creature in it the yellow guy, yeah, the I think that's. Guy, I think that's Ratchet. Yeah, his friend is Clank. That. Well, you got three other things to choose from. First one, what was the first one? Fallout New Vegas. I imagine it's that. I'm. I'm going to go for Project Eden. Is that what you hey, Project Eden? Yes, yes, is right? yes. You did it. Yes. Well yes. done. Um. Oh, so you, the little yellow guy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Project Eden, actually, I have not played, uh, but it is a 2001, and this is from Wikipedia, by the way, it is a 2001 action-adventure video game developed by oh. Core Design and published by Eidos Interactive. The plot involves a squad of four law enforcement agents investigating the disappearances of people investigating the disappearances of people by working their way downwards through layers of a towering megacity. And I believe the people who disappear work for the uh, quote-unquote real meat company, which is actually a synthetic meat company. Ah, the irony. However, um, so I don't know anything about Ratchet and Clank except that it came up in the pub quiz last week. Um, (laughs) But, um, so I just put that in as as a joke. But um, I have played both Fallout New Vegas and Planet Base. Planet Base does actually have synthetic meat, but it's not like a 
core part of the plot. Um, I'm surprised that it was a core part of a video game 20 years ago, must admit. Yeah, but like I say, you know, this idea has been around for over 100 years. Um, And, you know, like in the kind of golden age of science fiction, you're seeing a lot of people play with that idea as well. Like Arthur C. Clarke, for example, um, Mm -hmm. I think uses it multiple times. Um, Ian M. Banks in the Culture series. Now, I haven't read the Culture, um, but I believe that that is kind of similar to Star Trek in the sense that it is a post scarcity utopian science fiction type thing so again um it seems as though cultured or synthetic meat is prevalent there i keep using the word prevalent i should find a (laughs) open a thesaurus um (laughs) but uh, but yeah so so yeah there are kind of two different approaches to it it sounds like in project eden once again it's very much this idea of like oh man, the future, it's crazy. It's all mechanised and we're all alienated from the natural world and the meat isn't real. Which again, well, we've talked about why that's kind of a mm, problematic concept anyway. Mm. Um, But yeah, so in Planet Base, it's actually a really positive thing. It's just a way of diversifying people's diet. Planet Base is uh, basically a kind of city builder slash resource management sim where you build a colony on an uninhabited planet, or I think it's not always uninhabited, actually. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, and, um, and one of the things you have to do is you have to try and balance the nutrition of the people who live there, and one of the ways you can do that is by synthesizing meat so that is a Mm. positive representation of cultured meat which is cool in fallout new vegas as far as i remember there certainly isn't anything like that and i don't think in the fallout series there would be the infrastructure to produce cultured meat anyway but i guess in a sense you have genetically modified meat well it's not genetically modified it's just mutated from nuclear fallout so it's kind of different but uh, yeah it's actually we'll start to see more positive representations of cultured meat kind of appearing in science fiction Mm. that's coming soon off the back of especially now it's becoming more prevalent again across normal media yeah and research is increasing whether that well i I think it could go either way couldn't it yeah i think it's already i don't think it's always represented negatively you know i think it's already that you have both positive and negative representations and it's just that Mm. maybe it skews more negative because as i said utopian science fiction is actually just rarer people tend to be less interested in it in general um (laughs) although you know you're getting stuff like solar punk coming out now which is a really interesting genre of sci-fi which is much more kind of optimistic and i wonder if that might be part of it you know um i think Mm. that maybe there's going to be a little bit of a cultural turn towards optimism that does seem to be emerging in science fiction of the last few years so yeah so i think it's less to do with necessarily attitudes towards synthetic meat and it's more to do with what people are trying to do in their stories you know whether they're trying to evoke a utopia or a dystopia or something in between and so that's what i mean though i wonder if as as it's becoming more prevalent i'll use your word (laughs) (laughs) to for, for us to be trying to find alternatives for our food sources and cultured meat potentially being an integral part of that, whether in more optimistic <laughs> sci-fi uh, movies and or what have you, whether they're going to start using bringing in cultured meat as a positive representation to try and reinforce 
the move towards more sustainable food production. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. Mm. But I think already it's just, it's represented positively in positive science fiction and negatively in negative science fiction and kind of neutrally in neutral science fiction. Like, for example, The Expanse, which kind of... I would say is neither a utopia nor a dystopia. It's just, I guess, using science fiction as a way to examine existing inequalities, which obviously a lot of science fiction already does. But Mm. in there, I think, you know, it uses background meat. And I don't think it's supposed to be good or bad. It's just supposed to be fairly neutral. And I think that, yeah, it, it really just depends on the genre or the tone of the text itself, whether they use it in a positive or negative light. And I think attitudes towards it are fairly neutral on the whole, but maybe it will just become more normalised and increasingly neutral. But at the end of that round, oh, <laughs> you got uh, you got Do you got two. two you got two out of six. Um, oh, that's disappointing. Well. Well, maybe we'll um, you'll make yours harder, and I'll make mine easier, and yeah, we'll meet in the middle. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, that was a very educational and very interesting discussion. We did go a little bit long, so we'll wrap it up gone now. Over a little bit, yeah. We've gone over, we've gone over a little bit on what we intended to do, but you know what? It's all good. It was all, it was all great content. Uh, oh yeah. So, uh, thank you so much for teaching me more about. Uh, cultured meat and we will reconvene next time for the next episode of it's the future i've tasted it (laughs) it's the future i've tasted it oh and thanks to everyone for listening thank you so much for listening (laughs) and uh follow us on our socials which we'll uh uh to tbc (laughs) right do i have to do that no that's fine (laughs) just give me a second to uh, get into character well thank you for listening to our very first episode of the mo scale if you enjoyed it tell a friend if you hated it tell your enemies Uh, (laughs) but seriously word of mouth would be amazing it does also really help if you can you know like and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcatcher is, it all does really help because of the algorithms. The algorithms, I tell you. If if you would like to do that, it would really help us out. But, you know, no pressure, no pressure or anything. Um, but um, you should definitely follow us on social media, and there's a lot of pressure to do that. Oh, um, so yeah. find us on Instagram or Twitter, at the Mo's Scale. Um, or if you'd like to send us an email, it's themoscale at gmail.com. That's right. Yeah, it's the most scale, all one word, no underscores, no, no dashes, uh, no numbers. No just uh, the most scale. No tilts. Uh, no umlauts. <laughs> <laughs> no acute accents. What's the other one? I don't know. You don't know what the you studied French, oh. didn't you? What's the other one uh. that's not acute? Oh God, I've forgotten. <laughs> Okay, well. literally... <laughs> oh, that's that's going to annoy me now. Thanks, thanks for that. I want to say obtuse, but that's not right. That's, that's for what, angles. That's what's in my head, too. No, that's, that's angles. not right. No. Okay. Anyway. Um, oh, God. <laughs> oh, we did say that we were going to revisit a few little points that we touched on during our initial record that we maybe didn't get a chance to fully 
uh, clarify at the time. So, first of all, let's start with a super simple one. Billions. UK versus US billions. So, as it turns out, I think we pretty much said this. Um, We basically got it. But originally, in the UK, a billion was a million million but in the US it was a thousand million and now basically it's become standardized and it's a thousand million everywhere is a billion which which we decided that in the 70s but it still causes a confusion today (laughs) for reasons isn't (laughs) who knows isn't that so funny it's like before either of us was born but we're still kind of like hang on a minute (laughs) (laughs) um we can't have ever been taught it, but just there's this little tall thing in my head that goes, hang on a minute. Is this the right use of billion? Well, I know, but you say that. <laughs> and then I like, doubt myself. You know, when I was, or when we were at school, we were taught the metric system, right? But I can't, I know you can think in kilometres, but I can't. I can only think in miles. Well, that's um, only recently, though. That's only since I started using Strava regularly. Uh, yeah. I, I used to think in miles, too. But, like, if somebody so. tells you their height in centimetres, does that mean anything to you? No, absolutely not. No, me neither. <laughs> uh, like, it's bizarre, isn't it? But I guess it's just, like, our parents were with the imperial system and they kind of brought us up with that oh and we're going Mm. back to it now because of brexit so it's fine (laughs) (laughs) yeah um all right moving swiftly on so the next thing we should maybe just clarify or give a little bit of detail on antibacterial resistant diseases in the u.s do you want to just clarify uh, yeah so so what i said was that Two million people in the US have agricultural-related infections each year, antibiotic-resistant agricultural-related infections. However, I re-looked at my data, and there are two million antibiotic-resistant infections each year in the US, which leads to over 23,000 deaths. However, this is antibiotic-resistant infections in general, um, and according to the Centre for Disease Control, about 22% of these antibiotic-resistant infections are related to foodborne pathogens. Um, So it isn't the full 2 million. Now, to be fair to you, Ashley, I don't think that you actually said that they were all related to uh, livestock or agriculture. I think that you were just a little bit vague on it. So I don't don't think that you were, like, misleading per se. I think uh, you just weren't 100% sure how much of it was linked to agriculture. All right, perfect. Right, next up, does meat pollute more than cars? We thought yes, but we've done a little bit more digging, and as it turns out, it's a bit more complicated than that. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? So, right, let me get this right. While it is the case that cows do produce significantly more methane, uh, Mm. or sorry, more greenhouse gases in general... Yeah. And they do produce methane rather than CO2. Now, methane is more potent, but it Mm. is shorter lived. So it's true to an extent that cows produce more greenhouse gases than do cars. I'm really making a pig zero this um but essentially it depends on the scale, time scale you're looking at exactly in the short so term, yes in the long term no in the short term yes they produce more greenhouse gases and the greenhouse gases they produce uh, methane 
gas yeah. um, is is more potent, but it's shorter lived. So yeah. cars are worse in the long run. Cows are worse in the short term. So I guess it evens out. Um, but but, but in any case, I think it's a moot point because they're both are negative. They're both bad. They're, like, they're, they're both, both bad. bad. <laughs> We're not, you know, like come on. It's not a competition. Exactly. They could both be bad. Um, yeah. But, uh, but it's a little bit more complicated than we may have initially made out. Uh, yeah, I think we've covered that. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm, I want to talk briefly. You asked me about food scarcity in the Republic of Korea. And so I have looked at this a little bit. I couldn't find a huge amount. Um, I did find a couple of articles, one of which were, is uh, the struggle for food sovereignty in South Korea. And it talks about the Korean Women's Peasant Association. Mm. Um, and it was awarded the Food Sovereignty Prize. This was back in 2013, so a while back now. But we were talking about the films of Bong Joon-ho, some of which are mm. a few years old. So, um, so it's all relevant. So a few key points. South Korea's agriculture contributes only around 2% of the nation's total GDP, while the nation's market economy is ranked 14th among 188 countries. The percentage of farmers in the total population has reduced from 50% in the 1970s to 7% or below in the 2010s. More than one-fourth of farmland has disappeared. Over the past four decades, farm income has increased by approximately 120 times, while debt has increased more than 1,600 times. But what this article basically seems to say is that this is all kind of a normal uh, consequence of uh, industrialization and globalization. So it's not kind of a phenomenon that is specific to the Republic of Korea per se. It's just something that does happen in any sort of growing industrialized economy. Um, Mm. But it does seem that there's maybe culturally like an emphasis on food justice and food sovereignty there that because of you know the history and everything that maybe is quite specific to the republic of korea and then the other thing that i found was about the impact of climate change basically climate change is obviously going to have some impact but it does not appear strong enough to have significant consequences on food security to put it in a nutshell So, I mean, pretty much everything that I'm reading here doesn't seem like it's specific to the Republic of Korea. It seems like it's kind of stuff that's pretty much global that is affecting every industrialised economy. Do you think that the the countries that are at the forefront of lab-grown meat developments are under threat for either food scarcity or food sovereignty issues? Well, that's a huge question, and I don't feel... Well, I expect you to answer it in 30 seconds. I don't feel <laughs> equipped to to answer that. I, I don't know how much of a correlation there is. I would imagine that... So the, the countries that are at the forefront, as far as I can make out, are Singapore, Israel, UK, and US, right? Um, mm-hmm. Those are very rich countries. So I think that that is the main mm-hmm. factor that is driving this much more than issues of food sovereignty and food scarcity i mean you know if you look at the places where there's really severe food scarcity i mean like you know something like the yemen for example it's not happening there because it's a poor country so i while it may be a factor i don't think it's the driving factor i would imagine that wealth actually would be the major factor that is driving this Um, or perhaps the combination of wealth and more threat to the food system. Well, yeah, but I mean, 
I think that the threat to the food system is is a global issue. I don't think there's any nation on earth that isn't to some degree affected by it because climate change and globalization um, are the two big things that are affecting it and that mm. is pretty much going to apply across the board especially climate change there might be the odd country that can escape the effects of globalization and agribusiness but they're not going to escape the effects of climate change so i don't i i just think that that is a global issue it's not confined to any one nation or collection of nations so mm. so i think that wealth and you know the ability to put money into developing cultured meat is going to be the the driving factor there rather than but again you put me on the spot there Ashley so (laughs) we we can probably take that out because this was meant to be the wrap-up no 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 it's good it's good discussion but um but I feel like we're now going to need another wraparound for me to come back to what I've just said and make sure it's true. But no, it's interesting. I'm glad that we. I'm glad that we're, we're talking about it. I think that's nearly everything that I wanted to talk about. Except you did mention this argument about food being commodified, and I wanted to come back to that. Mm. Because I think, to be totally honest with you, I think that when you first brought that up, I wasn't totally clear on what you meant by that so Mm. can you do you you think that you can clarify that at all well although i can't remember my exact reasoning from the time (laughs) um there there is an argument that food is being commodified and or or already is i suppose Mm. and it it is treated as a tradable good based Mm. on its economic value and i found an interesting figure um in an article by the united nations university okay um that says that half of those that grow 70% of the world's food are the ones going hungry, which right. is a, a scary figure, really. Yes. And there's a need, to, I think, to move away from this commodified food to food being, whether it's a common good or mm. a human right, it, it shouldn't just be a commodity based on, on its market value, because I think that's where you end up with market failures i suppose like world yes hunger and malnutrition in every sense whether that's obesity or malnutrition whatever it is uh-huh. is a market failure because we, i don't think we should have food which is its cheapest possible makeup it, okay it, does that make sense yeah so i think i understand the argument i think maybe what was tripping me up was this idea of commodification because i think that basically throughout most of human history food has been a commodity so i think mm. maybe the emphasis is on decommodifying food rather than yeah. the idea that it has recently become commodified because i don't think that's true um mm. so I I, I I think increasingly so though in the last i don't know 50 to 100 years mm. i think things like battery chickens for example that that development of food to be as cheap as possible or very very much treated as a commodity rather than something that's reared with love and care and then um, well, i think maybe... maybe we're like sentimentalizing <laughs> pre-industrial agriculture when we start going okay. down that maybe road. a little bit um i think we yeah i think we need to be a little bit careful about that and i think you know i think that exploitation has always been a part of food not always but i think that exploitation has been a part of food production for a very long time i mean if you look at the feudal system right 
Um, I mean, you the people who were producing the food were being exploited by the people who owned the land. Um, yeah. So I don't, I don't necessarily agree that this is a recent phenomenon. I think that this is something that's been going on for a very long time. Where I do agree is that I do think that food should be a human right. Um, I do agree. So I think there's a tension here, right? Because I think what you're talking about is making sure that people's labour isn't exploited. And... Of course, I completely agree with that. At the same time, does that necessarily mean making food more expensive? Because as we're seeing recently in this country, you know, food Mm. insecurity is on the rise. Inflation um, is massive at the moment and it is affecting the poorest the most. I mean, Jack Monroe has been doing some really, really good work on this, on how it's the budget food that has increased the most proportionally in price. So it is the mm. poorest who are being affected the most by inflation. You know, so we're seeing food bank use. And of course, throughout the COVID lockdowns, there was the issue of free school meals not being available for vulnerable children. So I think that when we start talking about food being too cheap, I think we have to be really careful about what we mean Mm. by that especially if we are making the argument that food is a human right okay if food is a human right then how does making it more expensive solve the problem well i I think it depends how you address the problem Mm. I, i do think that food the price of food should reflect its cost and trying to cut corners will usually mean that somebody or something whether it's the environment or the welfare or or whatever is is going to be getting mm. a short straw somewhere. Yeah. That doesn't mean that I think that food should be unaffordable, obviously, to... to it, it should be affordable to everyone. Yeah. I, how that's addressed... I th- but I think this I, is the I, dilemma, I, isn't it? Because I think that at the moment, dilemma. food is not affordable to a number of people and at the same time... Huge numbers of people. Huge yeah. numbers of people and at the same time, the people who produce the food are being exploited. And I guess... Yeah. Um, you know, one of the big culprits of this, again, would be globalisation, right? And agribusiness. So potentially maybe some kind of decentralisation of food production could help to address this. But then when you think about the sustainability of the food system, that, that may not be the best option because there are... If something can be produced in its most environmentally friendly way in a certain climate, then having developed in one place and sent to another is sometimes the better option yeah yeah it's it's, it's not a simple answer however well but then Um, okay but then you know maybe more of an emphasis on local foods right so Mm. things that can be grown locally so that you're reducing those food miles potentially I, yeah I, i think there's pros and cons to that as well well then so what so what's i don't know what the answer is okay (laughs) um so we don't know what the answer is but at least we know what the question is (laughs) yeah exactly um well well this is i I feel like we've opened a pandora's box really but um (laughs) but you know i I think it's good to yeah a, a just fair healthy culturally appropriate nutritious food system probably weren't going to get the answer in five minutes there however it's an issue that someone should be looking at (laughs) yeah you know what if you have any ideas why don't you email us um at the most scale at gmail.com because 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 we don't know what to do (laughs) Um, but i'm glad that we kind of scratched the surface of that because i feel like it was an interesting point that maybe we didn't have a chance to properly dig into 
um, mm. on our initial record. So even though we're left with more questions than answers, <laughs> at least they're interesting questions. And um, yeah, and and we'd love to hear your views. So yeah, we would Send love to emails hear your views. or tweets. Or Can I just say we'd Instagram love to hear things. your views about the content of our episodes? Um, please do not send us your views on. For example, uh, vocal fry or up talk or, uh, you know, you don't like our voices or we laugh too much. Um, uh, we will just uh, mark that as spam and we will not engage. So please don't do that. But on a positive <laughs> note, we would love to. <laughs> uh, we, we really would. Love Any to. positive feedback is fine. Negative feedback, we don't want to. Constructive criticism <laughs> is fine. Just not like your voices are annoying. You know, if yeah, it, I can't do anything about that, really. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I could start speaking like this. That might um, be better. <laughs> yeah, like, do you like it better when, like, I talk like this? Is that better for you? Uh, here's the thing, right? Um, there's a really great This American Life episode about vocal fry and how criticisms of it are deeply gendered. So, if you have any. <laughs> If you have any desire to send us an email about our voices, maybe just check that out first and just just take a look in the mirror, man, okay? I, th- I think we're going off on a tangent. I feel like maybe we're going off on a tangent and maybe this won't stay in, but maybe it will. Um, <laughs> but regardless, please do send us an email at themoscale.gmail.com or get in touch on Twitter or Instagram at themoscale and like rate review subscribe tell do your all friends, the things do all of those you know what to do good things that people tell you to do at the end of a podcast which is what this is it's the end we finally got there we did it it's finished it's done we'll speak to you next time yeah tune at in you next, next time. time tune in next time <laughs> thank you this has been the mo scale Sci-fi faux fun. <laughs>